The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 Everyday Anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI Professor of Physics and Astronomy, Claire Yu. Professor Yu has been at UCI since 1989, 30 plus years, and was recognized as a professor's professor last year when she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Her research interests include, get this, biophysics, condensed matter physics, and quantum computing, which I'm really looking forward to hearing more about, Welcome, Professor Yu. How are you today? Good. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. I understand that you have an interesting family background. Could we just start there and go forward? Where were they from? So my family uh, is from China. I'm the only member of my extended family that's not fluent in Chinese, but my parents came over in 1947 after World War II, and they planned to go to school in Iowa for a couple of years, get graduate degrees, and then return. But since they came in 47, the communists took over China in 1949, so they chose to stay. And they were both from quite wealthy families, which is why they could come over. My grandfather on my mother's side was a governor and a senator in Sun Yat-sen's government, which is around the turn of the 20th century. Wow. And then my father's father, my grandfather on my father's side, was a tax collector for a while. He was a secretary to the chief of staff of a general. It's a period of time around uh, Chiang Kai-shek, a bit before that, when they had um, warlords and things like that. So, uh, and then he became a tax collector. And back then the tax collectors were given a percentage of all the taxes they collected to try to eliminate bribes and graft. So he became quite wealthy that way. But my father was born in a hut with a dirt floor. Wow. Have you ever had a chance to go back and visit old family locales? I did go with my brother and sister-in-law in 2006. And we went back to that village and saw that area of Manchuria. It's um, part of Liaoning province. So my 
grandfather, my mother's side was a governor, I think, of Liaoning province for a while. Wow. What was that like to go back? Did, did you feel connected or was it, thank God, I... No, it just it was interesting, but I don't really feel connected because I was born and raised in the United States. So I'm very much American. I mean, I, I understand some of the cultural aspects and it's changed a lot since my parents were there and stuff. But, you know, we went back to the village where my father had been born. It was just surrounded with cornfields and it was more advanced than when he was there, but it was still pretty rural. So where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in Pocatello, Idaho. My father was a professor of accounting and he was teaching at what was then called Idaho State College. It's now Idaho State University. So that's where he was working. So I was born in Idaho. Then when I was two and a half, before I was three, he got a job at the University of Maine in Orno. So we moved to Orno. So my earliest memories are of Maine. Wow. I love Maine. Did you enjoy it? Were you there long? I really did like it. I lived there from that age until I was nine. I went to fourth grade there. We did take one year and go to Salt Lake City because my dad was on sabbatical. It was a nice small town, very safe. Everyone knew everyone. It was a different era. You know, it was the early 60s. I remember seeing John F. Kennedy when I was a little kid. He had come for an honorary degree when I was just as I was finishing kindergarten in May. So was he the president of the United States at that point? He he was, and everyone was very excited. And I remember we were all out on the, basically the football field or whatever of the university. What I remember is the Marine One, the big helicopter with the double rotors and the big wind it produced. And that's what impressed me, right? And then it lands and this little man gets out and goes and gives some speech. That was not so interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. So where'd you go from there? So then when I was 10, we moved. My father got a job teaching as a professor at the University of Florida in Gainesville. So we moved there and I went to fifth grade there in Florida, which was quite a culture difference. (laughs) You know, I stayed there through high school. Uh Uh-huh. How was the culture different? In what way? You know, it was a Southern accent. It was a lot warmer. I remember we had a cleaning lady who was black. And I, when I first got there, I couldn't understand what she was saying. And later on, she was perfectly clear. I think it was a Southern accents. People said, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Y'all. And I grew up saying you guys. <laughs> so it was, you know, sort of a different, it was a big, much bigger city. It was, but it was a were, good place. Yeah. Good education. Were, you, were you aware of the space program? At, at that oh, time? yeah. Very much aware, you know, when I was a kid, Sputnik was a big, you know, people, John Glenn and, and the space program was very much prominent in the news. And in fact, I did see, I think, Apollo 17 launch. So I remember going down to Kennedy Space Center. I was part of an astronomy club. They had gotten passes to able to get within a couple miles of the launch pad yeah and it was a night launch and i remember they kept delaying it delaying it finally i just went to the car and lay down and then someone came and got me and said you know it's taking off so it was amazingly impressive especially at night because it just lit up the whole area it was just like daylighted so 
when did science kick in for you? When I was little, um, my mother read to me books about the stars. There's this little golden book about stars and constellations. And she would get books out of the library. And I remember one about Newton, where it said that Newton sat under an apple tree and the apple fell on his head and he thought of gravity. And another page showed a big red balloon going one way and the air going out the other. And for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So then when I was eight in third grade, I read a book called A Real Book of Science. And it said things like, if you're in outer space, you can't hear anything because there's no air. And I thought that was very interesting. And then when I was in fourth grade in Maine, I would read whatever the kid who sat across from me read. I don't know why I didn't pick my own books, but I <laughs> I would read. And Robinson Crusoe was a really tough slog because I had this policy. I had to finish everything I started reading. <laughs> but he started reading books, biographies about scientists. Yeah. And so that got me interested, Galileo, Faraday. And I remember in fifth grade, I read this biography of Einstein. And I didn't quite understand it. It was talking about special relativity. And somehow when things went faster, they got stouter. I didn't know what that meant. But it was space and time. And I would get in these metaphysical conversations with my babysitter. I was 10. She was 11. We're still very good friends. But I would ask questions about, you know, what is space? What is time? If you have the cube of empty space, is there time in it? Things like that. So that, I think, fired my imagination. And so, you know, I wanted to be a physicist from age eight. Yes. So you must have been getting good grades. You know, it's getting time for college. Where did you set your sights? How did you pick? I applied to schools which were really strong in physics because I knew I wanted to be a physics major. And I didn't visit any colleges except University of Florida, which is the city where I lived. But I went to a recruiting visit in Jacksonville, about 80 miles away uh, from somebody from Princeton. And they showed this movie, which they said won Academy Awards. I liked that movie a lot. And then, so I was a, a Christian and I had this little voice that sit inside me, you're going to go to Princeton. It was just this certainty. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was the Lord speaking, but I wound up going to Princeton. I got into everywhere I applied, and, and so I chose Princeton. Oh, wow. How was it when you got there? Um, it was hard. It was a, it was a shock mm -hmm. because high school's easy, and you're smart, and you do well, and the problem was that physics wasn't taught very well at the high school I went to. We just wrote in different colored pens in our log books and we watched these movies and videos. I'd never solved a physics problem until I got to college. Mm -hmm. So getting to college was quite a shock. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't doing very well. I thought I was struggling on these weekly quizzes. And in my opinion, flunking them, I would think of how to solve the problem after the quiz was over that kind of thing. So it was a struggle because yeah. there are a lot of other smart people. And so I felt stupid. I was wondering why I was so much dumber than everybody else. So that was hard. Do you feel like you just grinded your way through it? Or was there, was there something that 
got you through that period? Um, you keep trying, um, struggling. I think I was also learning to grow in my faith spiritually because I was praying a lot. You know, when you're in a lot of trouble, you pray. And so you're trying to ask God to help you pass all these tests and quizzes. And so for me, it was finally came to the realization God wasn't so much interested in serving my idols and my goal, but he was more interested in me serving him. So it was a straightening out of my priorities. I think I remember, I thought I had advanced quite a bit. So by the time I got to junior year, I asked the Lord that my grades would reflect how well I followed him. And I think I did worse that semester than any other. <laughs> so that didn't go real well. And then I remember at church, I went to this little house church and they were getting ready to go to some conference or convention up in Ithaca, New York. So I was supposed to help with running recreation and I was supposed to run the teaching duck, duck, goose to four-year-olds. So they had a rehearsal. They said, okay, everyone come on Sunday and we're going to practice. And this was right before finals week in the spring quarter, uh, spring semester. And I felt like, uh, you know, I really need to study quantum and all these things for my final exam. But I felt like it was a test, you know, was I going to put God first or was I going to go do duck, 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 goose, you know, is it quantum or yeah. duck, duck, goose? So I chose duck, duck, goose and I went and did that. And I, you know, I did fine. I did well that um, uh. semester. So to me, it was a time of growth. And then I think what really helped was when I went to graduate school, I stayed at Princeton. I went to graduate school there we studied together as students. I didn't really study with other students when I was an undergrad, but we studied together for these big exams called the, they were like qualifying exams. They were called prelims and generals. And when I studied with my classmates, I found out they were just as dumb as I was. And so that was quite a revelation, made me feel much better. Um, so I wasn't wondering why I was so much dumber than everybody else. <laughs> wow, that's quite a story. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I update our audience. If you just joined us, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Astronomy and Physics Professor Claire Yu. She's been at UCI since 1989, and we're exploring her career and you know, how she came to UCI, and we haven't quite got there yet. So, Professor, after you succeeded at Princeton. You went all the way through your PhD. Did you know where you'd go right away or was that a, a bit of a mystery where you would end up? Well, I wanted to stay in academia. I wanted to become a professor and do research. So the standard way that these things happen in the sciences is that at least in physics is you don't immediately go from a PhD to being a professor. You spend a few years being what's called a postdoctoral fellow or a postdoc. So if graduate school is like being a apprentice, then postdoc is like being a journeyman. So I applied. To so it's just expected that you're going to get some experience as a journeyman. Yeah, that you go somewhere and work for a professor someplace as a postdoc. And so huh. that's just standard practice in this field. Okay. Uh, usually it's you know, two years. I wound up being a postdoc for five years, but I postdoced at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and then went to Los Alamos National Lab as postdoc. 
for another two years. And then I couldn't find a job in academia or a suitable job. So I went back to Illinois for a year and then came out here. Can you tell us about that process, how you found out about the job at UCI? And Well, yeah, so that's another story where jobs were hard to come by, academic jobs, and you have to perform well when you're a postdoc, publish a lot of papers and give talks and things like this. And I think going back to when I was at Los Alamos, I would have lunch with another, he was a staff member who worked at Los Alamos. And one day when I went to the lunchroom and sat down with this guy, Bart Bennett, his advisor from UCI, he I guess gone to UCI as a student, was visiting Los Alamos. That was Alex Meriduden. And I heard them talking about something and I, Alex was a very well-known professor. I, I knew he, of his reputation, but I sort of disagreed, I think, with what he was saying. And so I decided to speak up and challenge him. And I thought, well, he doesn't know me from Adam, so it doesn't matter. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we got in a very animated conversation. He remembered that. And that I think was one of the keys to why I got hired. But, you know, it's an arduous process because I applied several times. And so when I was, I think in Illinois the second time and applying, I remember several interviews and no job offers. And then I went to what we call the March meeting. It's a big convention of condensed matter physicists run by the American Physical Society and meets in March. And at that point, I didn't have any offers and things were not looking good. So I remember lying in bed in the hotel room, waiting for my roommate to finish using the bathroom. And I thought, well, you know, this is it. I no job offers. Um, it's dead end. I need to go to medical school or something. And I felt like the Lord said to me, we well, didn't ask what I think. And I'm like, well, fine. What do you think, God? And God said, wait. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, what, what use is that? <laughs> right. I, I've already been doing that. <laughs> yeah, I've been waiting. You know, what do you think I've been doing? So not very helpful. But a few hours later, I got a message. Back then, you posted notes on this message board, you know, paper notes. I got a note from Doug Mills, who was a professor here. And he said, you know, I'd like to talk to you and see if I can attract you to coming to UCI. So, you know, that was just a few hours after that wait mm. message. <laughs> gotcha. Very good. Professor, could we go through the three decades at UCI. So the first 10 years, which was basically the 1990s, what was that like? Was that, uh, you know, just kind of getting your feet wet and figuring it all out as a professor teaching classes? What, what are your memories? That's a long time ago. And I'm not sure everything <laughs> is blurred together. I think yeah. I remember, yeah, you have to learn to teach to not go too fast through material. I would often ask colleagues at other universities, the guy I work with at Illinois, I got a copy of his lecture notes and so forth, and I would use those. I think one of the challenges was running a research group and not really having been trained in how to do management because your initial assumption is that people who work for you are like you and they're not. Everyone's different. They have different strengths and weaknesses. So I think it was trying to learn how to be a good leader of a research group. Mm -hmm. Teaching, I don't think was as difficult. I tend to be, I think, reasonably good at, at explaining things, though I've had students fall asleep in my classes, so maybe <laughs> not. But 
And then there was the struggle, you know, at that stage, you're trying to get tenure. You're very conscious of trying to do publications, of giving talks, getting grants funded. So that's always, that's a challenge, learning how to try to run grants. It's still a challenge trying to get grant money, especially now it's, I think, getting harder and harder to get grant funding. You know, I always hear about grants. Is that, oh yeah, that's 50% of my job or is it 25% or no, it's 100%. You know, can you survive without getting grants? How important is it? Well, you're given when you first come startup funding. So there is some sort of seat money and funding that's given by the university for new assistant professors. Maybe being a woman, I didn't negotiate. And the amount I got back then was a pittance compared to what people get now. (laughs) But being a theorist, I didn't need that much money. Um, I think you want grants in order to do research, but also that's one of the criteria they use when they're evaluating you for tenure. So that's the other reason why it's important. So I did get grants. I did get uh, funding. But, you know, even now it's a struggle. And there have been times when I haven't had grant funding short periods of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you start to make phone calls type of a thing? Do you wait? What's, what do you do when that um, I think back then what I did, which I don't do so much now, is I had been told that it's good to go visit the grant monitors. So I went to Washington, D.C. and that area to talk to the people who are program managers to get tips. And also I would write proposals and then have more senior colleagues kind of try to give me tips. But it's always hard because you're supposed to write what you want to do, but then other people who are referees may say, well, I don't think that's feasible or, you know, it's too speculative or it's too, you know, they have all these opinions and you're kind of just stuck and have to wait to the next year to try to write and rebut what they've said or improve and take their suggestions and do it and that sort of thing. So it's, it's a challenge because Mm. it's a bit of a crapshoot as to who's going to review and you don't know who's reviewing your proposals. Is there a monetary average of what you say, you know, or a range? It's like $50,000. I guess it depends on what decade too, but I don't know. Nowadays, you know, I'll take whatever amount. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I think to, you know, fund a graduate student or a postdoc, you need probably as a theorist, um, where I don't have to pay for equipment and supplies for a lab, 100000 or 120000 is nowadays the going amount. I think it was less than that back when I started. But you have to realize that that's the total cost. The university takes a third of that, typically. Mm-hmm. So for every dollar you spend from a grant, the university charges your grant $1.50, or a, a university takes 50 cents. So I spend a dollar, but it costs the grant a dollar fifty. Mm-hmm. So what we call overhead. Mm. So that's why the money you get for a grant is not entirely used for research. Gotcha. And it's interesting. So you have a research lab, but it's more desks. It's not a wet lab. No, it's not a wet lab. We have computers and people doing pen and paper, but we do collaborate with experimentalists. So in physics, we kind of have two types of physicists people who do experiments and work in labs with equipment 
And then um, what we call theorists do computer simulations or do pen and paper analytic calculations. Very few people bridge that and do both. And now you're in the physics and astronomy department, but are you solely just the physics aspect? I do physics and some biophysics, but I don't do astronomy. I think it's interesting. Actually, when I was in high school, I did a project in astronomy where some professor at the University of Florida had several years worth of chart recorder data that he wanted reduced. And after a couple of years of reducing data, which was pretty boring, that pretty much killed my interest in being kind of an astronomer. But, um, <laughs> so I am yeah. in the physics part, but when I have uh, astronomy questions, I always go over and ask my colleagues over there. And they're gotcha. great at answering that. And did you feel like your second decade, that you know, the 2000s, anything remarkable? At that point, are you tenured? Yeah, I got tenure after three years. So we, you know, in principle, at a lot of universities, you can wait six years before you go up for tenure. UCI, where it's a standard practice to usually tenure after three years. So three years to tenure is fairly common at UCI. Yeah, you, in your fourth year, you would be tenured. Your third year, you go up. And the process takes about most of the, really the entire academic year to go through the process that UCI has. So yes, I was certainly tenured by the time the 2000s rolled around. Gotcha. And do you remember anything remarkable happening during that decade? 9-11? I think I remember I went to um, Israel for a conference in, I guess, September of 2001, and my parents were very worried because there was all these bombings and stuff in Jerusalem. And I remember landing at JFK, coming back from Israel on September 9th and calling my parents and saying, you know, I'm fine. Uh, we're in New York and I could see the World Trade Center and everything. And then, you know, flew back to Los Angeles early on the morning of September 10th. And then on September 11th, I was still on Israeli time. So I woke up at five and I turn on the radio and nothing's happening. And suddenly they say, oh, there's the plane that crashed into the World Trade Center. It sounded like, you know, the pilot was just an accident. Something wrong at that point and going down and watching things happen in real time. So that's what I remember about. Did things change in terms of your area of work? Did things shift? I don't think so. Not really. Yeah. You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest is UCI physics professor Claire Yu. We've been talking about her first two decades at UCI from 1989 to 2010, and we now move to 2011 and up to the present day. Here we go. How about these teen years at UCI, 2011 to now? Is you're now starting to be a senior professor? Yeah, I think as you gain in seniority, you do more and more service, serve on more committees and that sort of thing. So that takes up more and more of my time. But that's sort of standard or expected. You have maybe less time to actually do the hands-on research. You spend more time on committees, writing proposals, teaching, writing papers, so then I, I think I had started probably in the late 2000s to start to get interested in biology and biophysics. And things have been shifting, I think, in the last 
decade or more, more and more over to doing more biophysics. So I do still do condensed matter, solid mm-hmm. state. Well, why don't we get into that? Now, biophysics, it sounds like you do a lot of research theoretically. How does physical science and theoretical science, you know, I I would imagine you work together on that somewhat. Can you describe Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. So I think they're all sort of different approaches, but the idea is to take some of the tools we have, such as doing computer simulations and statistical approaches to trying to understand some of the things they see in biology. So it's, I think, important if you want to have some sort of impact in biology to work with biologists and people who are doing experiments in biology. So one of the first people we worked with was Steve Gross, who is a professor over in cell and developmental biology, that department, but he's trained as a physicist. So he has a PhD in physics. So he knows how to talk to us and what physicists can bring to the table. Mm, Um, Interesting. So can you talk a little bit specifically on an elementary level? So is it just trying to go beyond what we can see in the microscope and trying to estimate how it works? Is that what it is? You mean for a theorist or experimentalist? Or yeah, yeah, I guess for a theorist, like, I mean, if you can see it and measure it, you don't really need a theorist, right? Well, you can measure things, but you want to be able to have some idea of a more coherent picture mm-hmm. of what's going on. For example, how your nerves work. That's not what I work on, but you know, how do you, it's not like current being carried in a wire. It actually turns out to be somewhat different. Ions come um, out of pores in the, in the neurons, but how signals travel, the people, Hodgkins and Huxley, who figured this out in the 1940s, used transmission line theory from engineering, and they won the Nobel Prize for that. I have a colleague who studies vision and sometimes he uses ideas like how compression is done when you take pictures with your cell phone and how the brain does some similar things or the idea of when you look at somebody or something the image on your retina is there but if you turn your head or get closer or farther away that image might grow or shrink or turn at some angle because you turned your head, yet you still recognize the image. And he was able to use some mathematical transform to show that that's how the brain processes and is able to, to recognize that image. It does its transformation. So you can apply theories like that to how all sorts of things work. People often use sometimes math to understand like what's going on to recognize patterns and to figure out what that's telling you about the underlying themes of what's going on. So do you feel like that that's a strong component of your work is math? Math We do simulations. So right now, for example, we're looking at cancer. So we're working with some cancer researchers One of the hottest things in cancer research is immunotherapy 
where the idea is to mobilize the immune system to attack the cancer. And so we know that if you, you have immune cells which infiltrate a tumor, then your chances of having a good outcome are much higher than if you have immune cells that don't really recognize anything wrong with the tumor and don't bother to infiltrate it. And that's how some of the new immunotherapies work because the cancer is good at putting the brakes on and preventing the immune cells from attacking. Basically, the cancer cells have little keys and they stick them in the keyholes of the immune cells and turn off the immune cells, keep them from attacking. So the new immunotherapy drugs tape over the keyhole or put tape around the key and prevent that from happening. So we use some of our statistical techniques to say, well, is it just how many immune cells are in the tumor or is there arrangement the way they're spatially spread out or not spread out? Does that make a difference? And we actually found that in breast cancer, a type of breast cancer is particularly aggressive, known as triple negative breast cancer, found that if the immune cells were more spread out, then there's less chance of the cancer recurring than if the immune cells were all clumped together. But we used some statistical techniques to, to quantify that, to put a number on it. That's amazing. So that's one way where we used analysis. What type of math are you using for that? Can you... Just briefly answer that, Professor. Well, we're, we're using statistical techniques uh-huh. to sort of spatial statistics. And it's actually kind of easy to, like, I can give you one example. For example, you just take a, a grid of squares, right? Just take yeah. a, yeah. and you, you place it over the image. And you just say, you go to each square and you say, is there at least one immune cell in this square? If the answer is yes, you put a one. If the answer is no, you put a zero. Mm-hmm. And then you count the fraction of squares that have ones. Mm-hmm. And then you, right, the more squares that have ones, the, the more spread out they are. And then you can change the size of the squares and see how things change as a function of the size of the squares. So that would be a very simple example of, what, of some of the techniques we've developed. Interesting. Good. And did you say that condensed matter physics was something more that you were involved with earlier in your career or are you still involved with it? I'm still involved in that. That's where I was trained and I don't want to let go of the side of the pool in some sense. So (laughs) (laughs) I still do study amorphous glasses at low temperatures, some of the properties there. And also we're looking at trying to understand noise in qubits, which are the basic elements, the bits of quantum computers. So, and when you say glasses, that's like, like glasses that you wear on your face. Yeah. Yeah. So the atoms are not uh, crystals where the atoms are very regularly arranged in a nice regular pattern and glasses are where it's sort of like a frozen liquid. It's just, everything's all jumbled up. Wow. Interesting. And so condensed matter physics doesn't have anything to do with black holes or? Well, black holes are really condensed, but no, we, some of the things they find in condensed matter physics, like for neutron stars, they've used things from condensed matter. So if the inside of a neutron star, which you take the sun and you pack it down into, so it's about 10 kilometers across, and it's just pure neutrons, that would be a neutron star. They find that the neutrons are 
what's called a superfluid. So we know that helium is a superfluid. The superfluids are usually found at very low temperatures and they can flow without any viscosity. They can crawl up walls and things like that. <laughs> wow. And finally, quantum computing. Could you just briefly tell us your understanding of quantum computing? I'm still trying to get my arms around it. So quantum computing, the idea is that if you're familiar with a computer, everything is zeros or ones, those are bits. Right. And so the idea with a quantum computer is rather than just zeros and ones, you could have, you know, if you had two bits, you'd have a zero and a one. But the idea is you would, or just take one bit, zero and one, quantum mechanics, you would sort of take a, a mixture, a little bit of zero and a little bit of one. And so you take sort of a, a combination of the zero and the one. And you can, if you have many bits, you sort of take a combination of all those. So there's a whole bunch of more possibilities. And the idea is that rather than having a computer where you would, if you have a question or you have a whole stack of questions, then you want to add up different sets of numbers. You would put in one input and get an output, put in an input, get an output. That's the way the cloud computer works that's sitting on your desk. The quantum computer would be you take all of your questions, you mush them up into one you know, quantum wave function or whatever, any one, one big ball, and you stuff it into the computer, and then it pops out with just one big answer that's got all your answers mushed up into the ball in some different way. And then you've got to parse out the answer. But the idea is, therefore, it's infinitely parallel. It's very much more efficient. So in other words, it's sort of like you stand in line at the grocery store. And if there's only one cashier, then everybody's in this very long line takes forever. But if you have a lot of cashiers, then people go to different lines and people go through what we say would be in parallel right, simultaneously. And so that's the big speed up of the quantum computing. And for example, you could have then unbreakable code. When you use the computer to send your credit card information, you don't want other people to steal it. So it's encrypted. The idea is that if you had a quantum computer, you could make encryption unbreakable. And uh, applicable to this recent Russian hacking on the uh, government computers, is that applicable? Yeah, in principle, it would enhance security. If you had quantum computers, you could, there's this idea of eavesdropping, you know, you talk to somebody, you want it on a secure line, and that if you did it with quantum encryption or quantum entanglement, then if someone tries to eavesdrop, you'd be able to detect that. Whether it would prevent people from eavesdropping, that would be harder, I guess, if we had quantum computers, it would be hard to eavesdrop on that. They would mess up the, the wave function, but it, that's, um, that's a bit of a stretch. Interesting, okay. You know, back to biophysics, is it applicable to our COVID-19 dilemma? Have you participated with any studies or research about that? I haven't, but some of my colleagues who are biophysicists have been working quite actively on all sorts of various aspects of COVID and trying to understand pandemics and 
transmission and mutation rates and all kinds of things. So yeah, there's a lot of physicists who are doing everything from making cheaper ventilators and more easy to manufacture ventilators and testing and all kinds of things. So there's a bunch of aspects where physicists have tried to contribute. Was your area not applicable enough? I didn't see an easy way to pivot to that in some way that I felt I could contribute that other people weren't already doing. So we didn't try doing that, though I was quite interested and was following some of the research and things that were talked about in the press. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Distinguished Physics Professor Claire Yu, who now describes her recent admission into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Looking at this appointment into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, can you tell us about that? Is that something that you apply for or you you're elected to, or how does that work? I understand it is quite prestigious. Yeah, it's a very old honor society. I think it was started by John Adams in something like 1780. It's a very old and prestigious and very diverse. It's not just scientists. It's got people from all different areas of society have been members. So it was really quite an honor. It's an honor society and people who are members nominate people. And so Some members nominated me, and I was fortunate enough to be selected. So you don't actually apply. It's something where people nominate you. Well, congratulations. Do you know what was identified? Was it your research or methodology? What do you feel like you were recognized for to be elected into that group? Um, They mentioned several things, but I think one is some work I did for my PhD thesis and also some of the work we did on glasses. It was used in maybe some of the work on quantum computers. We were looking at sources of noise, which mess up the quantum computer. So yes, some of the work we did on understanding how glasses behave at low temperatures and also some of the work I did for my PhD thesis when we were looking at what were then high temperature superconductors. They're not really very high temperature now, but they seem so back then in trying to understand some of those properties. In terms of things that you haven't had time for, is, is there any particular area of research that you're like, uh, this is an area I I've always wondered about and and, am interested in, but I haven't had time to really look at. Nothing comes to mind, though there are things where I wish I had more time to spend more time to learn about them. Some of the new things in condensed matter physics, like they call them topological insulators and some of the ways that quantum computers, some of the algorithms people have developed. So they're Areas that I I think I'd like to learn more about that I haven't had time to devote to that. Gotcha. And this is a question I've been asking scientists for a while now is who, in your mind, are the top three scientists of all time? Do you have a sense of that? Of all time? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's extremely broad. Uh-huh. I might just restrict it to physics. Okay. Um, 
but even then it would be hard. I don't, um, and it depends what criteria you'd want to use. I suppose one would say Einstein would be one, maybe James Clerk Maxwell and, and Newton, maybe Michael Faraday. I mean, these guys are all old, but um, they're all dead. But um, in terms of the sort of fundamental foundational things they did in physics, our modern technology would not be possible without what they did. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to hear these same names get repeated over and over. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nowadays you might go for Louis Pasteur, right? Because he did the first vaccine. Uh, well, no, I, I take that back. Jenner was the first one. Probably the vaccines, but... Um... Edward Jenner, so because he, um, he noticed milkmaids had gotten cowpox and they didn't get smallpox. Mm, interesting. And so that was that was Edward Jenner, but um, Pasteur came up with the uh, vaccine for rabies. Just for our, our students out there, Professor, in terms of does any other ad adversity come up in your mind, like during your career, that was a bit of a, a rough spot and and how you saw your way out of it. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, sure. Other than the ones which I've already discussed, I had cancer in 2010, breast cancer, uh, stage one, mm -hmm. early stage breast cancer that was discovered with a routine mammogram. So I would certainly encourage women who are 40 and over to keep up their regular mammogram screenings. So because mine was stage one, it was relatively mild and a very curable. So I'm fine now, but I think that was certainly an unexpected challenge because I'd always thought of cancer as being something that happens to other people, right? Not something that happens to me. And, and then I found out that it did in fact happen to me. So I think they discovered something on the mammogram and then had me come in and then did a biopsy. And then I had to wait over the weekend, trying to wonder what would, uh, whether it was benign or malignant. And then I went to the um, breast surgeon's office to, to find out. And they usually get people, patients coming in who already know the diagnosis, but my primary care doctor had already, she had seen the radiologist report. So she had given me a referral to a specialist before we even knew for sure. So when I was in the doctor's office waiting, then a resident came in. This is UCI. So they have um, doctors in training and he came in and he was just looking at the chart and he looks down and he says, well, since the results are positive and I'm like, wait, what? The results are positive. He's like, oh, you didn't know. I thought you knew. Yeah, the results are positive. And then he, things kind of went downhill from there because he was he was not very sure of himself. And part of that was because since I hadn't had surgery, they didn't know exactly what sort of treatment I would need. But because he seemed unsure of himself, um, and that's not what you want to hear at that time, you want someone who comes in and knows what they're talking about. I remember thinking, oh, you know, go get the real doctor. But I can't say that to him. So I'm like, <laughs> why don't you go get 
Dr. Lane and that, and so sent him out. And, and so then the real doctor came in and, and this was much better because she had experience. And so I'm just sort of sitting there stunned and she didn't really realize that I just heard the news, but I remember sitting there, I was, mm, I guess I had changed into a gown. I was waiting for her to come in. She came in the second time she had introduced herself and then said, okay, get changed and I'll come back. She came back and I had my head down. I was, I think in shock. And she came up to me, I think put her hands on my shoulders and said, you're going to be just fine. Those were words that I held on to because that was really hope. Mm. So that's why I got interested in working on cancer. Mm. And certainly I think my faith helped a lot as well as the support of friends and prayers of my friends and that sort of thing certainly helped a lot to get through uh, something like that. But you learn from cancer, I think, that you're not in control. You, you have this illusion in life that you're in control. You choose what job you take, what car you buy, what school you go to, and you think you're in control. And then cancer comes along and you realize you're actually not in control. I think the other thing I learned was that you never know what's going to happen in life. So if you have an opportunity to do something, you should take advantage of that and not say, well, I'll do that later. I think people maybe got a glimpse of that with the pandemic. A lot of people's plans were disrupted by this unexpected pandemic. Right. Well, Professor, your faith has come up multiple times and your clarity in serving the Lord has struck me. Can you describe that clarity? I think one of the things God wants more than anything is a relationship with him and wants to be in communication like any relationships wants you to spend time with him. And so just one more story. I, I, the way that happened was I was, I had at the time a, a big grant and I had a experimental collaborator and it was really more money than I needed as a theorist. So I gave my experimental colleague, I was the principal investigator. I was in charge of the grant. So I gave my experimental colleague quite a bit of money and resources. But then I found I wasn't getting much in return because he would go and write papers, but I would not be a co-author, even though I had helped pay for that research. So, and part of it was just, you know, we didn't have as good communications we should have, but I was sitting in church one Sunday thinking about, you know, I poured all those resources into this guy's lab. I didn't really get anything out or didn't get much out. And I felt like the Lord said to me, well, I poured a lot of resources into you and I didn't get that much out because in the sense that I was not really spending time with him. And that really cut me to the quick and convicted me. And so I immediately started spending some time every day, you know, reading the Bible and praying, which was very useful. The timing of that was a few months before I got breast cancer. So the timing was really fortuitous. So I think that's one of the things in serving and then just being in Christianity, we say sensitive to the spirit, but sort of, you know, thoughts or little promptings come into your head of to speak up and say this or do that. And often it's just little things to try to maybe encourage somebody or help someone out or, you know, share something, which is also part of serving. It's, it's often impromptu and often not scheduled. 
but there are, you know, obviously scheduled things or their meetings and things with other believers, church meetings and the like, and obvious ways to, you know, you could work in the church and stuff, but also, you know, just in everyday life, you meet people and sometimes you can do things and say things and help think people and it can be at work, it can be students and stuff who are struggling and so forth. Thank you for that. And, and thank you for the, the hour that you spent with us. It's been very enlightening and really appreciated. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me and I've enjoyed it. Thank you again to UCI physics professor Claire Yu for a very interesting journey through her life, career, her adversity, and her faith. I very much appreciate her personal insights and the time she spent with us today. If you feel compelled to hear and see more Claire Yu, you can always Google the website for UCI's What Matters to Me and Why Speaker Series. Professor Yu was the first speaker in the speaker series way back on November 14, 2012. Enjoy. And now coming up next at 5 p.m., another KUCI public affairs program, Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra. This show looks at today's business problems and explores solutions with recognized business leaders. Stay tuned. And triple thank you to Fred Kaplan, blues piano man extraordinaire, for his show theme music from his wonderful CD, Signifying. In fact, as is tradition, he will sign this program off in about one minute. And don't forget, you can always reach me at kboss at KUCI.org. And listen to today's interview again or any of my previous interviews on my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. You have been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, encouraging everyone to keep washing those hands, socially distancing, and wearing those masks. In fact, double up your mask if possible, and double down on precautions. The vaccine is on its way, hopefully only a few more months to go. We are all in this together. Zot, zot, zot. So long, everybody.